Here we go. So I need you to, it's participatory time. Um, I need you to say this with me, all right? Sex is awesome. All right, very good. Now, how many of that was felt really comfortable saying that out loud? Nobody. Said nobody. All right. So unless you're kind of tucked up there in the corner by yourself and y'all kind of on your own row. Uh, all right. So here's another statement. That's true. I mean, it's true. God designed it to be beautiful and awesome and incredible and breathtaking and heart-stopping and all that kind of stuff. That's what it's supposed to be. But sometimes sex is dangerous. Say that with me. Sex is dangerous. If you're one of the one in four or one in one in four women or one in six men that have experienced a sexual predator, let's say it like that. Let's say somebody has touched you inappropriately and you did not invite them there. And my, oh my, sex is dangerous. Sex can be very dangerous to the wound, to the heart, to the soul of who you are. For some, maybe in this room even, you have been living with a sexual offense that for you to even say those words, it's a, it's a, it's a dark spot, conjures up all kinds of dark spots. And for some, you've experienced this and you've never told anybody. Now, this is not a message about, about dealing with that, but let me just say that that, that has informed your template of your sexuality, whether you realize it or not. So sex is awesome, but it's also sex is dangerous. I want you to say this next statement with me as well. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not dirty. That's why I have got to, I must share this series of messages. That's why we must do the Song of Solomon properly because it is not dirty. It is never intended to be dirty. It's intended to be this beautiful, incredible experience between two people for the rest of their life. And that's what it was meant to be. And I'm afraid that the world has silenced and muted the church that holds the, 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 the truth uh, and it's been silenced and muted to the point that we no longer speak of it, no longer talk about it, no longer give direction. We're afraid to even talk about it with our kids to the point that what Satan has done is moved into that vacuum and has rewritten the script, has re-altered the, uh, the conversation, has taken it into dark places, into inaccurate places that we've got to reclaim. Okay, if we really believe that it's awesome and of God. So let us go there today. And I am incredibly nervous in sharing this message. I am in front of a, a lot of bright lights and a lot of faces. Okay, so I'm sweating in the pits and my heart has been beating all morning long. And so, but I think I'll make it. But the, the, the nervousness is truly because we don't talk about it in a healthy way. And I want us to at least begin to bridge that gap today because in this class that I took in, in, in my undergraduate studies on ancient Hebrew poetry, I actually pulled off the shelf my, my, my textbook, uh, recently and reread it for this series of messages. And, uh, Bullock was the, the professor's name who wrote the book. He said this, he said, the ancient Hebrew mind could no more isolate and alienate the sexuality of man from God than he could conceive of man as a self-made creature loose from the divine moorings. Basically what he says, you can't separate sexuality from God nor God from sexuality. 
It goes together. And so what we need to do as believers, as followers of Christ, get back to what he intended it to be from the get-go. And let's redeem it to where it was as he created, as he put man and a woman in a garden. They were naked and unashamed. Let's get back there. And it's going to take some journey. And it's going to take some plowing up some rocks to get there. But we need to get there. Richard Foster said it like this. Sex is like a great river that is rich and deep and good as long as it stays within the proper channel. If it ever gets out of that channel, what happens to a river when it swells its banks, when it goes beyond its tributaries, when it goes beyond that zone, what happens? Flood happens. Loss of life happens. Pain. Uh, uh, a lot of things happen in a negative sense that we've got to reclaim. And I want us to keep it in the channels, keep it good, keep it deep, keep it rich as God intended it to be. Again, back to our culture, picking on our culture today. Because what our culture has done is we have minimized sex. You say, no, 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 Mike, we've maximized. No, 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 we've minimized it. We've made sex common language. A sitcom can't happen without sexual innuendos. A movie can't happen. A a, a Netflix binge watching can't happen without us seeing things and seeing people and going to places and getting uneducated in our education. Uh, We have gone from from marital security to marital insecurity. We've gone from, uh, from casual dating to casual sex. We've gone from hookups to swinging. We've gone from online portals that It'll help you link up with people that are so you can have an effect. There's so many things that have minimized and brought sex down to just absolutely vanilla. Now we think it's freed us up. That's what the that's the lie again in that vacuum in that void. The lie the world has fed us, and we have we have believed it that I'm free, I'm sexual. Therefore, I need to be practicing my sexuality even as young as a teenager. In reality, we need to understand how can we maximize sex? How can we bring it back to the way God intended it? It's not minimizing it. It's maximizing it. And so the best way I can do this is just to work on and whittle down a definition for what is, I believe, sexuality from a biblical point of view as God intended it. So I'm going to read it. If you have your journal Bibles, you might jot it in the journal uh, of your journal Bible. You might jot it somewhere else. You might commit it to memory. It may be something that you want to go back and break it down bit by bit. But here's what it says. Here's my definition of sexuality as God intended it to be uh, in, in in the home as we maximize it. Sex is a sacred, exclusive, captivating love song written and composed between a husband and a wife that celebrates their vast diversity while creating unity and oneness in heart, soul, mind, and body. Think about that. Leave it up there on the screen. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to highlight some different parts of this. It's sacred, exclusive, and captivating. It's sacred, exclusive, and captivating. What does that mean? What is that idea? The whole idea is that God, in all of the relationships that He created, in all of the networks that we have, in all of the people that we have, whether it's relatives or whatever, there is only one relationship that is an exclusive relationship. It is a husband and a wife. 
It is the exclusive relationship. All other relationships, you, you, you intermix. I can high five you, you high five me. I can give you a hug. We can, we can hang together. We can walk together through life. We can do a lot of things together with a lot of different people. But there's one thing that is meant to be sacred and exclusive and captivating. And so that's what he intends it to be. That's when we maximize it, we will make it that. We will keep it that. Love is also a love song. And it's written and composed or composed and written by this husband and wife. Written, a song that is written. It is being written. You're writing it throughout the journey of your life and years together. Through the hills and the mountaintops when you're looking out there and everything looks wonderful and beautiful. To the valleys that are dark. You can see even in great love songs the ebb and flow and the up and the down of a good love song. Well, so you're writing it. Whether you're the McClellans married for 50 plus years, you're writing a love song together. It's nobody else's love song. It's your love song. It's your love song. And you get to write it together. And that's where it comes to husband and wife. Listen, we can't, we can't, We didn't define marriage. We can't redefine marriage. We can't make it something we want it to be so we can be more inclusive. It is something that God created. If we want to go outside of God's creation and call it something else, call it something else. But when God created a man and woman, put them in a garden forever to, to be lifelong partners, that's what he intends it to be. A husband and wife. In, they celebrate their vast diversity. There is incredible amounts of diversity, right? Between a husband and a wife, between a man and a, and a female, there's anatomically differences, there's chemical differences, there are emotional differences, there, there are bone structure differences, there are muscle mass differences. There is so many differences. It's kind of like, how in the world are we ever going to fit together? And that's the beauty of what God does in a marriage. When he takes all that diversity, all that differences, and he brings us together in this beautiful love song together, bringing us together in unity and oneness. Now here, and sexuality is maximized when we understand it. It is heart, it is soul, it is mind, and it is body. It's all of those together working together. It's not just body on body. That's the minimized version. It is body, it is soul, it is mind, it is heart coming together. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says it like this. Marriage should be honored by all. Stop. Marriage should be honored by all. We get to look at what God created, what God made. We don't get to redefine it, reshape it, remake it. Again, message message one, we don't get to redo what he's already designed, okay? Unless we're going to mess it up. So he designed it, he made it, he brought it into, well, let's honor that. Let's honor marriage for what it's supposed to be. Let's unpack that. But then what else it says? And the marriage bed to be kept pure, holy, righteous, set apart, Again, it comes back to the exclusivity of it. It comes back that I don't bring in somebody else. I don't bring my thoughts of somebody else. I don't bring the images of somebody else. I don't bring, this is what we did back then. No, no, no. This is your love song written between you two 
coming together. And I like the Song of Solomon. When you look at this, this is an incredible story. When we come to this book right here, we've got the story, the blueprint of which God designed it. And then he gives us the commentary to back it in the Song of Solomon. Whenever you see this, this couple coming together, you show, it shows tender alignment. It shows a sacred union. It shows an expression of love. It shows vulnerability. It also shows loyalty. Them coming together, staying together, being together. And you know, another thing I like about the Song of Solomon is not one time in eight chapters is it about procreation. It's not one time about procreation. It's always about pleasure. Now, there's a time for sexuality and procreation. And that's where a lot of prudish uh, Christian church, churches have gone, that it's, it's just procreation. And then there's the reality. And God intended it to be for pleasure. And yes, it produces children on the backside when God blesses in that way. Here, I'm going to give you a lot of life principles today because there's so many one-liners that I need to boil it down to. And so you're just going to get bombarded. Here's number one. A mutual agreed sexual... Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Back to the first one. God wants our sexual expression to align with our calling and His character. When He says, I want you to... to uh, 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 keep honor marriage and I, I want you to keep your, your marriage pure. That means we're going to align with that. That is the way that we need to align our thoughts about marriage on and it's aligned off his character. He's holy, therefore it needs to be holy. It needs to be kept sacred and we need to understand it that way. So another life principle, number two, it's a mutually agreed upon sexual encounter between a husband and wife is an act of worship. Think about it like that. A mutually agreed upon time together between a husband and wife, a mutually agreed upon sexual encounter between a husband and a wife is an act of worship. That brings a whole new meaning to worship night at the family, right? (laughs) Brings a whole new meaning to family worship time. And so there's going to be a lot of husbands saying, hey, it's worship time, kids go to bed. If we're keeping our marriage bed pure and we're honoring marriage as it should be honored, then we will find that it is a beautiful worship time. So let's bring it back. It is a sacred, it is exclusive, and it is captivating. It's music that we write together. Lori and I have been writing this music, this song, this rendition, this version of our, of our, of our love song for nearly 29 years. And so as we continue to write ours, how is yours written? How are you writing yours? How are you beginning to write yours? Think about it. I want to give you in rapid fire as best I can, seven smooth moves in making sheet music. All right? Again, we warned you, this is PG-13. You as adults and married people will have to read between the lines at some point. Students that are in the room, please listen in because this will also apply to you. Singles, listen in because the very first smooth move that you make is especially for you. Number one smooth move that we make is be patient. Be patient. Some people have the idea that I need to have a lot of experience over here so that when I get married, it's going to light her stars up. No, be clunky together, be awkward together, 
Learn how to do it together. Be patient in that process. Now, I realize when I'm talking, I'm talking to teenagers, I'm talking to singles, I'm talking to parents in the room, and there's all kinds of different stages of parenting. You know, there's the parenting stage of the preschoolers and the elementary age. Those are what I call the exhausted years, okay? You're just exhausted. You know, you you thought life was tough before you had kids Boom, drop a kid in the mix, and all of a sudden, everything's exhausted. You don't sleep like you used to. You, don't, you, you spend those preschool years, and you, you end up running us around, okay? You're running. Where are they at? Where are they at? you gotta, you got to look out for them. And then they get to elementary years, and then you're running them around, okay? Taking them here and there and signing them up because you have a child prodigy, and they're going to be in the top 2%, and they're going to make it to NCAA uh, in, in the sports. And so, therefore, you've got to sign them up for every traveling team league out there so that they can make it to that top 2%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you had a child prodigy, that got silent there all of a sudden. It's so awkward for me. Uh, but anyway, it's exhausting whenever you think about all the money and all the time, all the energy you spend chasing the kids around the country, and then all of a sudden you wonder why it's all gone to pot, because you're exhausted. You're financially exhausted, you're physically exhausted, those are exhausted years, but it, it gets better. Because the exhausted years, well, actually, you don't get better. You're still exhausted. But it goes into the awkward years. Those are the teen years or the preteen years. That's when they begin to change and everything begins to change in the house. Attitudes change. Doors start slamming. Uh, privacy becomes an issue. Uh, a hair starts being all over the place. Or, you know, there's a lot more drama. Or there's pimples and there's, and, and there's hormones. And there's just a lot of awkwardness about it. You'll even see a guy in the same word go from a soprano to a bass in a matter of one word. And so the, the whole awkward years, you just can't say enough about them. And I can remember in fifth and sixth, fifth or sixth grade, I can't remember when it was. And you, you, did you all have a class in school whenever you got together and they talked the sex talk in fifth or sixth grade? Raise your hand. All right, that's most of you guys. All right, so you, you had that sex talk if you, unless you were homeschooled, and then you maybe didn't, but if you went to a public school, it's, it's required. You gotta go into that and have that sex talk. I can remember as kids, I mean, we're all laughing, we're all gonna go in there, the girls are over here, the guys are over here, we're all going into our sex talk, and we're learning about ourselves and the changes that we're gonna have. Here's a bit of parental advice from a two empty nesters, okay? Send your kids to school to learn their A's A's and B's and C's and their one, twos, and threes, but don't send them to school to learn about the birds and the bees. Because in that vacuum that I speak of, in that political correctness, they're not going to get truth. They're going to get political correctness. And what we have to do as parents is we have to help the next generation come up and they have to understand because in that absence of clarity, there is ambiguity. They don't know who they are and they can't be told who they are. So they're trying to figure out who they are. And if the parent is not engaged, then guess what? They graduate into life clueless or trying to figure themselves out. And there's ambiguity without, in the absence of conviction, there's permissiveness. Whenever we don't say this is right and wrong and you shouldn't do that on a date. And I don't care what everyone else is doing on prom night. You're not doing that or, or whatever the case may be. And it may be combative. And so therefore we as parents give in to that. Listen, stop the gravy train. You're still the parent. Convention, conviction needs to be there or permissiveness will fill in that void. 
In the absence of safety, typically what comes is brokenness. If we don't keep a good, safe parameter around, then brokenness comes in. Parents, it's our job to create clear, conviction, safe environments for our children to navigate those awkward years. In the, in the lobby, in the resource area, there's lots of pages there. Parents, pastor picks. Oh, I can't even go through them all. For you to have age-appropriate conversation, if you're not, guess what? The kids on the playground are. If you're not, guess what? The boys in the locker room are telling the other boys in the locker room how to do it. So you know that, and I know that. And it's not while I was doing it then. Well, was it right then? No, not any more than it is now. We need to be able to step forward as parents and say this is what's right. Where do I get all this? Instead of this just ranting, go in the Song of Solomon. And he mentions it three times. He mentions it in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 8. So literally the beginning, the middle, and the end, he is mentioning this again and again and again. And he says this in verse 5 of chapter 3. I adjourn you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles. Remember, a song of Solomon is written to single ladies particularly. He says, I adjourn you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love. Until it pleases. Until the time is right. There is a right and a wrong time. Myself, I learned most of my sex ed first time around through pornographic magazines in the attic of our house. That was where I first found out about that. And I indulged and I took it all in and I processed it all and everything. Psychologists tell us this today. It was creating a sexual template in my mind that I was going to carry on into my marriage. And so as I'm sitting there processing through all of that, and then I reach puberty, and then I reach junior high, and then I reach high school, what was my goal? My goal was to conquer every girl I could conquer. I don't say this in pride. I say this as one who's walked in the shoes of a lot of single people today to say this. Don't awaken love until it's time. Until there is a right time for it. Don't do it any sooner. It's hard to put that monster to bed once you've awoken it. And it is just that. So what happened in my life, I told you a few weeks ago, is that I put the brakes on. For a year, put a moratorium because I felt like God was doing a tremendous amount of work of idolatry destroying in my life. And so I buried my face in the carpet floor of my bedroom, the very place that the idolatry took place. And I was buried there. And as, as if God met me in my brokenness and he swooped down, he said, Mike, you got character work to work on. You got work to work on on you. And so we began a year long, basically fast on girls. And I refused to date him. I refused to look at him. I just would look at Christ. And I renewed that relationship with him. Made right what was broken. Built character. Built parameters around my life. Made sure I was on the, on the right. Got men in my life that would speak into my life. And again, I, in that process I shared a few weeks ago, that's when I met Lori. Lori and I began to date. We dated for five years. I'm not saying this in any kind of braggadocious way anymore than I was bragging over my conquest as a junior high and a senior high in high school. But I can tell you this, for five years of us dating, I never touched more than her hand or her lips. Because I, she had standards, I had standards, and we put them up and we were not going to cross them. 
We, and you've got to do that because you've got to put that monster to sleep. So if some of you have awakened love already and you're stirred up and you're ready to, 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 to charge on it, to stop it. Back up, back up, back up. You've got to, in the power of His Spirit, command and control those passions or they will command and control you. Be patient. Number two, be romantic. Be romantic. Now we're going to get into this. He says that in verse, um, verse 5. He tells them not to awaken love. And then uh, in chapter 3, uh, we, uh, Andrew has already read this passage. I'm not going to read through it all, but I want to skip down to verse 11 because now we know where he's at. On the day of his wedding, what happens? His mother crowns him. Who's his mother? If you have in your Bibles or your little journal Bibles, put Bathsheba out to the side because that's his mother. Bathsheba was the very woman who had an affair, forced affair, if you will, with King David. And Solomon would end up being born through that, through that relationship and that marriage as it begins to become a reality. He would lose that child born uh, to Bathsheba, but Solomon would be born later. And Solomon becomes the king, and it's Bathsheba who crowns her husband, or her, her son, on that day. And it's his wedding day. It's a special day. It's an incredible day. It's a day of inspiration, and you can read through that. But here's one of the things we've got to realize, men and women... As trying to be romantic, we do romance differently. Again, diversity becoming oneness, writing that song together, diversity becoming oneness. Men, you've heard this before, men are like microwaves, women are like crockpots. All you have to do is hit start on a man and we're starting and we're going. For a woman, it's just a slow cook. It's a slow cook and you got to add the seasonings and you got to stir the pot and you got to do all that. Well, here's the beauty of this passage is we get a good glimpse at just that where Solomon takes his time and he stirs the pot. Tommy Nelson, who has a whole series on the Song of Solomon worthy of listening to, he said this, men use romance to get sex. Women use sex to get romance. Men are thinking about the destination. Women are thinking about the road to get there. Here's two more life principles for you if you need some more today. Man challenge. Here you go. Enjoy the journey as much as the destination. It's not always about the destination. Women, don't give us road signs that lead to detours and dead ends. (laughs) We're not very smart, okay? We need clear pathways, and I know you change your pathways every day, and so please help us out. All right. Men, did I get a witness on that one a little bit? Um, all right, thank you. All right, chapter 4, verse 1 is whenever the marriage is, the wedding is, is happened, now it's time to consummate that marriage. Chapter 4, verse 1, this is what he says, Behold, you are beautiful, one of his favorite phrases that he says about 16 different times throughout the whole book. And then he comes back and he says it again immediately, You are beautiful. Now, I like what he does here. I don't have time. What he does is he basically speaks over her. He says, I value you. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. You are beautiful. He speaks value over her. But here, guys, you can't just keep using the same line over and over and over again. Okay? (laughs) We're going to get a lot of good conversations going here. So you got to change it up every now and then. So, But what, what Solomon does, how I know he's a romantic, is he starts breaking it down. He starts going in to naming her, her, her body. He speaks not only value over her, he speaks value into her. 
He says, listen, he's going to start naming off body parts, your eyes and your hair. He talks about our hair being like a flock of goats. Again, not everything that Solomon says is romantic. And then he starts talking about their teeth. Now, I thought that was interesting, the teeth thing. And then he says, like, he uses an entire verse to just talk about her teeth. So he's a pretty obsessed guy with this whole teeth thing. And then I got to thinking about it. You know what? I think we like teeth today too. I like, I like Lori with all of her teeth. And so uh, I found this research this past week from Helen Fisher, a biological anthropologist. She said this, the foremost three things that we judge somebody's attractiveness when we first meet them is their teeth, their grammar. Oh, I failed on that one. And their self-confidence. That's it. The number one thing that we look at is their teeth and then the grammar and then the self-confidence. So I thought, oh, wow, this is great. What we're going to do today is we're going to give everyone a toothbrush on your way out. All right. This is truly, if you didn't grab one on your way in, grab two or three on your way out. Give it to your significant other. Uh, because we have a great dentist in our church, uh, Mint Dental Care, all right? He has provided them, and he cares as much about your teeth as your love life. So there you go. Um, so you can grab that. It may be the best aphrodisiac that you have in your toolbox is, is a clean, fresh-smelling breath. But he goes on. He talks about her lips, her mouth, her cheeks, her neck, her breast, her mountain of myrrh. And I love verse 7. He says this, You are all together beautiful. My love. He just said that right in the beginning. He said it twice. You are beautiful. But this time he says, you're all together beautiful. And then he goes on. He says, and there's no flaw in you. I've checked you up and down, girl. I want every bit of you. There is no flaw in you guys. Let me say this. Bring it close. Women are incredibly self-conscious about their bodies. The last thing you want to do is joke, jab, point out a flaw, a bump, a bruise, a wrinkle. In even a joking manner. Because it can do damage that will take months to get past. Not a flaw in you, baby. Number three. If you're going to be good at this, you've got to be patient. You've got to be romantic. You've got to be captivating. Verse 9. I love this phrase. He says again, the way you emphasize something in Hebrew is you say it again and you say it again. He says it twice in this one verse. He says, I'm captivated. My heart is captivated. Captivated my heart. New, one translation says, you've ravished my heart. Another translation says, you have stolen my heart. Temper Longman translated, you drive me crazy. <laughs> I like that one. And he uses it in the PL form of the Hebrew a verb form, which is basically the strongest way you can say something in the Hebrew word. He's like, man, I am absolutely crazy over you. I am absolutely love struck over you. In fact, verse 9, that's verse 9. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, How much better is your love than wine? How much better is your love than wine? And when I, when I read that verse for the first time, I thought, you know what? Why is it that some people have to be a little tipsy before they get romantic? Why is it that some people can't make sheet music unless they're drunk? Why is it that we become more free-flowing in those times? 
Maybe we've lost something. Why is it that we have to have a a pill or a toy or porn to jumpstart something? Have we lost the captivation of one another? And maybe we need to go back and restoke and restore what God has given us in the very beginning. Next week, we're going to talk about conflict resolution. We all face that. The next week, we're going to talk about satisfaction. Use Whitney, um, uh, just lost her name, Houston's song, I Will Always Love You. But I'm going to put it in the form of a question. I will always love you. I will always love you. Because over time, time tells us that sometimes that fades. Here's another life principle for you. All marital problems will manifest themselves in the bedroom. Hang on to that. All marital problems will manifest themselves in the bedroom. Basically, your bedroom is a microcosm of your marriage. If you're too busy and you're too tired and you you aren't finding pleasure in one another, what's it saying about what's going on in your heart and your life? Are you captivating? Number Number four is be unique. Be unique. So be patient, be romantic, be captivating. And when you look at this, he talks about this in this beautiful way. We've just seen in verse uh, in, in chapter 3, we've just seen the wedding take place in verse 11. But if you go on in six times in just a matter of 10 verses, in verse 8, in verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, consecutive verses back to back, and then again in chapter 5 verse 1, He's going to mention this new title he's going to give her. He's never given it to her before. He's going to give it to her now. And it's this word, are you ready for it? Bride. And it's not just bride walking down a white dress. And, 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 you know, this is after the wedding. The wedding's passed and gone. He's still her bride. I thought, what does the word bride mean? We've adopted it. We've obviously brought it into our language. And so what does this word bride mean? And so when you start diving into the etymology behind this word, it's very interesting whenever you dive into it. The Akkadians use this word as a reserved one. The Ugaritic language used this word to refer to a goddess. Think about it like this. The Hebrew word brings it together. It is a reserved, revered, honored one that is a goddess. When he was speaking over her, he was saying, you are my unique goddess. You are my bride. You are my one. And if you go on down in verse 11 of chapter, chapter 4, he says, your lips drip nectar and uh, uh, my bride. Again, that's one of the times he uses my bride. Honey and milk are under the tongue and the fragrances are, of the garments are like fragrances of Lebanon. And then notice this next statement. And the garden locked is my sister, my bride. Now, sister here does not mean incest in in the slightest way. It's like we would say brother and sister. Hey, brother and sister, kind of an endearing, hey, I'm close to you, you're my friend. So he's trying to get as close to her as he can in his heart. He's like, you're my sister, you're my bride. He said the spring locked. He uses the word locked twice. Don't miss this. Her garden, anytime you see garden, this is a little answer key for you. Anytime you see garden in the book of Song of Solomon, it's going to refer to sexual intimacy. Her garden is locked. Her fountain is locked. But now skip down to verse 16. What does she do? The only time the woman speaks in this passage that we're reading today is one verse. 
And it's actually only half of that verse. Let my beloved come to his garden. It was her garden and it was locked. And now she is giving him the key and she is inviting him into her and saying, listen, you come to your garden. She just gave ownership of her body to him, which falls in line with 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Lori read from last week. Listen, my friends, whenever you think about a relationship, keep yourself unique, keep yourself locked, keep the seal on that lock and be unique as you give yourself away to your bride or to your groom. Don't be the community garden. Be a unique, beautiful, protected garden. Number five. Well, let me say this. I had a friend in high school tell me this about them, that they were being bullied and uh, by somebody because they were a virgin. And we've made virgin a, a jab, a stab, a make fun of somebody a virgin. So she was experiencing this kind of bullying. Oh, guys don't want to be with you. You're prude. You're, I just had all these kind of words rolling off at, them, at her. Finally, one day she'd had enough. And she just turned to this bully girl leading the pack. And she just said, you know what? I could be like you any day, but you could never be like me again. Drop the mic. (laughs) Be attractive. Number five, be attractive. Be patient, be romantic, be captive, be unique. He comes across this, and again, attraction varies from time and cultures, and it, 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 you know, but 20 different poems. He draws, he draws in 18 different plants, 13 different animals, okay? That's what Song of Solomon, Solomon's going to do throughout the eight chapters. He's going to introduce all these plants, all these, he's a botanist, I guess. I mean, if you think about it, in Ecclesiastes chapter two, and that's not a bad term, go look it up. It's a, it's a guy who likes plants, okay? Or a person who likes plants, not, not a negative term. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And when you read that, you're going to find that he's going to talk about his gardens and he's planting. But in chapter 4, seven times he refers to his wife's garden. Remember the answer key? Seven times his wife's garden in one chapter. He's going to refer to her garden and all of its various plants in the animals that make up the garden. He's going to use 41 different, you, you just count them for yourself, 41 different metaphors to describe the different plants and the different animals that make up just from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 1. It's all about the garden. He's coming back to the garden. He is a romantic person building up. Listen, guys, a little, little, little coaching for you guys. Don't approach the garden stinky like you've been working all day long. Don't think that you can work all day long, not shower, go to bed with a, with a layer of, uh, of sweat on your body and think you're going to rumble in the jungle. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen unless it's mercy sex or something like that. And so you don't need that. You're realizing if you're going to have the kind of sex life you're going to have, it's not you being the lion in the bedroom, okay? It's not a metaphor that he uses. He uses all these different animals. He doesn't use a lion. He doesn't use a bear, okay? You're not the bear who's going to maul the girl. You're, 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 he doesn't use um, a gorilla, like a gorilla in heat. He doesn't use any of those. What he uses, he uses a gazelle. What does a gazelle do? Think of a deer. 
It walks lightly in the garden. It, it grazes. It has its ears always open, always listening, always listening to the garden and what's going on in the garden. Highly sensitive, highly aware. We're called to be gazelles, not bears, gorillas, or lions. Ladies, a little coaching. If you think mud pie on the face, rollers in the hair, and an extra large T-shirt from your husband's uh, stash is Victoria's Secret, you need to think again. It's not Victoria's Secret or anybody's secret. It's a bad uh, thing. You know, when, when I think about Victoria's Secret, I've told Lori this, we may not have money for food, but we have money for Victoria's Secret. <laughs> Just letting you in on our life. When you go to verse 12 of this chapter... You, you, you start finding in verse 12, 13, 14, 15. I mean, he mentions all these different flavors and spices in the garden, nine different spices in the garden. And he speaks of the choicest of fruits. And I'm not going to read them all off. He speaks of all of this. And then he says in verse 15, a garden fountain, a well of living water. That is what you, your garden is to me. Number six, be erotic. Yes, erotic is not a bad word. It is a Greek word for love. It's an erotic kind of love. It's a very good thing. Be patient, be romantic, be captivating, be unique, be attractive, and be erotic. When I say that, it means look at the most erotic verse in all of the Song of Solomon. Okay, are you ready for it? I'm not even going to explain it. Just let your imagination run with it. This is him speaking to his bride as he's asking for entry into the garden. Awake, O north wind, o come, and come, O south wind. Blow on my garden. Let its spices flow. And then what does she say? And her only line in the story today is let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. There's a total vulnerability at play here. They are totally open, totally exposed. Intimacy is, can be defined as into me you see. Basically, you see me. I am fully known and fully loved. You, you get every part of me. I love it in, in again, Solomon speaking here, Proverbs five nineteen. He says, uh, "He says, let her breast fill you at all times and be intoxicated always in her love." Number number seven, and I got to wrap it up. Number seven is so important. I got to share it because I've got a lot of text this way. But here's here's what it is: be satisfied. Whenever you look at Solomon and you see what he says in these next verses, you can't hear anything but absolute jubilation. Whenever you think of the garden was locked in verse 12, the key was granted in verse 16. The very next verse is verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what he said. Notice the pronouns, 11 pronouns, personal pronouns in one, cha- in one verse. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and my spices and I ate my honeycomb and with my honey, I drank my wine and with my milk, he was all in. 
He was totally embracing. Listen, Alan and Deborah Hirsch said it like this. Sexuality and spirituality are sacred and go to the heart of who we are as, as relational beings created in the image of God. Neither can be denied or neglected at the expense of the other without damaging the ecology of discipleship. Have you ever thought about that? Put discipleship and sexuality together. Sex and worship are a part of the way we fulfilled the two greatest commandments to love God and love others. And that others is your spouse. Loving well. Let's talk about the elephant in the room because this is what we've gotten text on. This is what we've gotten questions. If you have even a semblance of knowledge of, of Solomon, you know that Solomon didn't stop here. He ends up having 700 wives 300 concubines, needless to say, he had a woman issue. When you break it all down, many people believe that Song of Solomon was the very first of his writings. The love, the adornment that he had for this one bride. Who is this one bride? Who is this Shulamite woman that we'll read of next week? Who is this woman? Is she from Shula or something like that? Shula's not a place. We'll talk about that next week. This is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, 1 and 3. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Could this be, could this be, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Solomon loved the Lord, uh, loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David. His father only sacrificed and made offerings. So what is he saying here? Basically, maybe it was his first wife. Maybe this Pharaoh's daughter was his very first wife and he's writing this to her. Maybe. But again, if Song of Solomon was written first, that's his first bride, I'm going to go with it. Proverbs was written second. Proverbs is basically written over the course of his entire life. 3,000 different Proverbs Solomon wrote and we only have a third of them in the book of Proverbs. So he wrote a lot of Proverbs. He had a lot of wisdom that he shared and he put together for us that we compiled into one book. That's Proverbs. But if you remember from the first of this year when we, read, when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes, that's his memoirs that he writes at the end of his life. After having 700 wives and 300 concubines, after conquering the world and having all the world's pleasures and his expo- exposure, this is what he said about it. Everything is meaningless. Everything is empty. I said to myself, come and let us, let us try pleasure Let's look for the good, th- good things in life. I collected great sums of silver and gold and treasures of the kings, uh, the provinces. I hired wonderful singers in both men and women and many beautiful concubines. I had everything that man could desire. He had it all. But what does he say in the very first phrase? He had nothing. It was meaningless. It was empty. It left him empty. What happened? Solomon not only lost his love for his wife, but he also lost love for his God. And it's a combination that took place there. You go on in the Solomon story in chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, it says this, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. We know that. Along with the daughters of Pharaoh and Moabite, Ammonite, and Edomite, and, and, and Sidon, and Hittite, women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, God had said to the people, you shall not enter into a marriage with them, neither shall they with you. 
Why? Why, God? Why are you saying I can't marry them? Surely they will turn your heart away, away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. God, you're telling me this, but I want to follow my heart. I want to go into this relationship. I'm going to be unequally yoked. God, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you, but I'm going in this direction. What happens? He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Read the last phrase with me. And his wives turned away his heart. It's not his wife's fault. It's Solomon's fault. Because he didn't listen to God. He had lost and compromised his love relationship with God. And what does it do? It compromises his love relationship with his beautiful, beautiful, flawless bride. Whenever you get off track in your relationship with God, it will affect your relationship with your spouse. You get off relationship with your spouse, guess what? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says it's going to affect your relationship with God. Those walk hand in hand together. Let's, let's pray together. Maybe the first move that some of y'all need to make today is to renew and to restore your relationship with God. Maybe it's to renew and restore your relationship with your spouse. Maybe you're sitting in this room right now and you say, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to look at the other person. I have disdain for them. The best thing you could do right now is humble yourself, lift up your heart to God, and say, God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Not, not what do they need to do. What do I need to do to make this right? And then listen to his still, small voice. Around this room will be deacons and deacons' wives and pastors and pastors' wives. We're, just gonna be, we're gonna be here for you. We're gonna pray and be available for whatever you need. I'm gonna ask them to get up and go to their spots right now and to just be there. I'm going to pray and then we'll begin singing. And as soon as we, as soon as I say amen, that is your invitation to step out and to go to have prayer with someone. Father God, you know our hearts and our minds and our struggles and our temptations and our detours and our dead ends. Father, help us to know you. Help us to renew our relationship with you so we can have a better relationship with our spouse. Help us, help us, Lord, to have a better relationship with our spouse so we can have a better relationship with you. Lord, we, we, we thank you for hearing and working in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand together?